Uh, good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 14, 1 through 7, and that's found on page 901 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Community. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you are here with us today. And uh, before we look at this passage more closely together that John read for us, I'd love to pause for a moment and just pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we read and study his word together. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken, that you are not silent, that you have spoken in creation, and you've also spoken by inspiring your word, that your Holy Spirit has inspired this book for us, and that you have through the careful work of men and women throughout history, preserved these words, um, allowed for their translation into a language that we can read and understand, and we thankful, we're thankful that you are, are still at work, even now, bringing these words to life in our life, each and every day that we read and study them. So we ask that you do that work afresh here, uh, that Jesus' words would be more than pen and ink uh, sort of on a page, but that they would come alive in our lives right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've had those moments. I'm, I'm guessing you have had these moments where you just find yourself in bed at night, unable to sleep, and your mind is just rolling around on a problem or a worry or a concern, and you're just, you can't fall asleep because it just keeps coming up, and, and you just can't stop thinking about it. Well, I had one of those nights earlier this week. I think it was maybe Monday night. Uh, and actually, I was thinking about this sermon. I had one of those. I was laying in bed. I, I couldn't fall asleep. I, my mind just kept coming back to this message. I was sort of, sort of felt stumped about how do, I, how do I teach this? I was feeling frustrated, defeated, worried. How am I going to organize this passage? I don't know what the unifying theme is going to be. Um, why is this so hard sometimes? How can I make this this interesting and relevant and not, I don't want to be boring on Sunday. And then it hit me as I'm laying there in bed. I'm worried and stressed out about how to teach a passage where the key message from Jesus is don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be worried and stressed out. Or the next day, Rachel and I were sitting in the living room and we were reading after the kids had gone to bed and Rachel, do you smell? I feel like I smell a little like natural gas. Is like, is the stove on a little bit or something? Like, when I was like, I don't smell anything. Went over to the fireplace, I don't smell anything. And then the next morning, I was like, ah, I do smell something in the kitchen. And there was like a small gas leak. That's another thing to be troubled about, right? Uh, thankfully, it was very small. It was just something that's where the connection to the stove in the back and super easy fix. But as the gas guy is there, and inspecting the house. He's looking at the hot water heaters, and he's like, you know, just so you know, 
you're on borrowed time with these hot water heaters. You're probably going to want to replace those soon. There's another thing to be troubled about. I don't want to budget for that. Every turn, right, there's a trouble. There's a worry. You look and there's trouble in Ukraine. There's trouble in the stock market. There's trouble at the grocery store. Right? How much are eggs these days? Like four sixty-nine for a dozen eggs yesterday I paid. It's crazy, right? There's trouble for your kids and for your house and for your mortgage. There's trouble at school and mental health and anxiety. There's trouble in the labor market and in politics and in all kinds of industries, right? Whether that's the airline industry or the tech industry or the auto industry, they're either in trouble or they're causing the trouble depending on which one of them you're talking to about the other, right? And in these moments of trouble, these moments of worry and frustration and anxiety, we want to know, is everything going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? How can it possibly all be okay? And I suspect that question of how is this all going to be okay was on the minds of the disciples as they sat with Jesus in this upper room eating what we now know we call the the Last Supper, this Passover meal, the night before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and he's going to go to the cross. And he's sitting there with his disciples. And Jesus is, is telling them some stuff that's really hard to hear. So if you haven't done that already, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 14. Again, it's page 901 in your pew Bible, or you can pull it up on your phone. But at this point in the gospel, Jesus is on a collision course with the religious leaders. They have decided that Jesus has to go. And not just like, we've got to send him out into the wilderness. No, he needs to be killed. And they had been annoyed, frustrated with him for a long time. But what really puts it over the edge for them is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so when you go back to John chapter 11, we read these words. This is the religious leaders talking. They say, what are we going to do since this man, Jesus, is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So look, Jesus is gaining so much popularity and influence that he is going to disrupt our power and our control. And so from that day on, verse 53, they plotted to kill him. Now, Jesus knows this. This is not outside of Jesus' control. This is all actually all part of his plan, what he's doing here. It's part of his plan to bring about redemption, salvation, for the whole world. It's been a part of his plan with the Father and the Spirit from before the foundation of the world. This is not coming as a shock or surprise. Jesus is using this evil, this opposition for his own ends and his own glory. But the disciples don't know the plan. And as Jesus starts telling them the plan here in this meal, they, they're a little concerned. Uh, because after Jesus washes their feet, that's what we looked at last week, this, this really iconic moment when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Jesus starts explaining the plan to them. Uh, he tells them, one of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to go away, and you're not going to be able to find me. And oh, by the way, Peter, you are going to betray me, and the rest of you all uh, are going to kind of run away from me as well. And you can sort of see the look on their faces that their world is starting to collapse in because they had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had walked away from their family businesses. They had walked away from their careers. And they have attached themselves to Jesus, this sort of itinerant teacher now for three years, with the hope that he is going to be the Messiah, the one who's going to overthrow Rome and bring in this new kingdom. And they're asking questions like, who Jesus is going to sit at your right and your left? And now he's saying he's leaving? 
And we're not going to be able to come. We can't find him. We're going to betray him. In the midst of all of that, Jesus has the nerve to say to them kind of in this moment, I'm leaving you. You're all going to blow it. You're going to be a huge disappointment. Your life is going to be filled with suffering. But what are you so worried about? Everything's going to be okay. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. Jesus is saying the same thing to us today. To all of his followers throughout church history, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. So I just ask you, church, this morning, are any of you troubled today? Of course. I mean, ask for a show of hands, but I mean, I think all of us, there are things that are troubling to us today, some big, some small, but we are experiencing trouble. And if you only take one thing from this message today, I hope it's this, is that Jesus is saying to you, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. And in these verses that Jesus uh, has spoken here, in these words, we see two reasons why Jesus is telling us it's going to be okay. And then he gives us a next step in sort of making those promises, those realities uh, real in our lives. And the first thing that Jesus tells us in this passage of why it's going to be okay, he says, everything's going to be okay because I know where you are going. Everything's going to be okay because I know where we're going. So listen to what Jesus says here. This is John chapter 14, verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'd go to prepare. I would not have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So if you trust Jesus this morning, Jesus says, I know where you're going. Even if you don't know where you're going, even if you're confused about the future, even if you don't know what the next steps are, Jesus says to you, I know where you're going. I know where we're going in all this. And we're going to be there together. And the reality is, friends, every day is one day near to our own departure out of this world. (laughs) The Bible tells us this. We don't even need the Bible to tell us. Our days are numbered. Every one of us faces death, the ultimate trouble, right? Death is the ultimate trouble, the ultimate worry that we all face. It's natural to be fearful of that. But Jesus has prepared a place for you. He's prepared a place for you. He knows where you're going, even if you don't, even if you falter in your confidence or you're not fully sure. He knows, if you've trusted him, he knows where he's going. He's prepared that place for you. One of our favorite things as a, as a family is to go on uh, road trips together. And we love the driving and going and staying in different places and seeing national parks and all this kind of stuff. But our, our favorite part, one of our favorite parts of a long road trip is getting to come back home to our place. And there's been a number of times when it's like we've been on that last kind of segment of the road trip and it's like, well, it's really tomorrow and the next day. It's really a two-day drive to get home, but what if we got up early enough in the morning? And what if we drove long enough? Could we make it home today? Because we just have this longing to be home. And so, you know, when the alarm goes off at 3.30 a.m. in the hotel and we're bundling everyone up into the car and we're on hour 13, what sustains us is the, the hope, the excitement of coming back to our place to our own beds, to our cats, <laughs> to our clean showers and bathrooms, the, our place. 
There's no place like home. And again, having that time away sometimes reminds you the goodness of home. Jesus has prepared a home for you. He knows where you're going. It's secure. And the reality is that it's a a place that's a home because of the person who's there. Now, in the King James version of this verse, uh, you get the idea of mansions, right? So uh, if maybe you've wondered, like, where do we get this idea of mansions in heaven? When somebody talk about that, it's kind of a popular, kind of, it's out there in the ether, the, we're all going to have a mansion in heaven, and what, you know, I wonder how big my yard's going to be in the mansion. Or that language comes from the King James Version, which was relying on, actually, William Tyndale was the first person to translate the Bible really into English, used the word mansion in this verse, but at the time when he did that, that just meant a house. It wasn't the idea of a, this kind of Downton Abbey-esque kind of estate. It was just a house or a dwelling. But so that's where we kind of get this language from. But Jesus said he's going to prepare a place, a dwelling for us. And again, what makes a house a home is who lives there. And Jesus has always been about having a people and a place. This is from the very beginning of the story of the Bible. When you open your Bible and you get this description in Genesis chapter 1, is God creating a place for his people where he can dwell with them. And the story of the Bible is in many ways a story of God having a place to be with his people. That's a theme you can trace from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 21 at the very end of the Bible. That God plants this garden, he puts Adam and Eve, these human beings, into this garden, and it tells us that he walks with them in this garden. This is God's place where heaven and earth overlap, where he meets with his people. And then, of course, the story goes, you have Adam and Eve who rebel against God. They choose to, rather than trust him to define what is good and evil, they choose to define good and evil on their own, and they reject God's goodness and provision, and they're exiled out of the garden, but God doesn't give up on them, right? He calls this guy Abraham and says, I'm going to bring you to a place. He promises him not just descendants, but a land, Abraham has Isaac and Jacob, and they end up enslaved in Egypt. And after 400 years, God raises up Moses, and Moses leads the people out into this promised land. And on the way there, God descends on Mount Sinai, again, with his people. God's presence is coming to dwell there, and he gives Moses these plans to make a tent called the tabernacle, where God's presence comes and dwells with his people. Then you fast forward in the story again and King David establishes Israel as a a kingdom and his son Solomon builds a temple which is a model after the tabernacle and God's presence comes and fills the temple just as it did the tabernacle and God is once again dwelling with his people in this place. And then you get to the point in the story here and Jesus is saying all throughout that I am the temple. I'm actually the place where heaven and earth overlap. This is part of the reason the religious leaders are so angry with him as well, is Jesus is saying, actually the place where God's presence is most fully on earth is with me. I am God. That's how we can say, I'm gonna, this temple's gonna be destroyed and raised up in three days because I am the temple. And then kind of a, a, a spoiler alert coming up here in the next couple chapters of John as we look at this, Jesus is saying, he's gonna say next week, that I am going to come and the Father is going to come and make my home in you. That actually God comes to dwell with his people and live in us by the Spirit, which is this incredible promise.
And then you get to Revelation chapter 21, 22, and God's presence is covering all things like the waters cover the sea, that the whole world is now a temple, the overlap of heaven and earth, a people and a place. And Jesus says, everything's gonna be okay because I know where you're going and I'm gonna be there with you. In fact, I'm going to come and bring you there with me. And then Jesus adds this in verse four, and he says, and, and you know the way to where I'm going. Guys, you know the way to where I'm going. And you can almost see the disciples in that moment, right? They're in this room, there's a table, candles flickering, there's half-eaten Passover food scattered around the table. Maybe they're kind of mid-bite, and Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And you can kind of see them exchanging looks with one another like, we do? <laughs> do you know the way? <laughs> I don't know the way. Do you? Did we miss a meeting where Jesus handed out a map? I don't know the way. And, and I love Thomas in this moment because I don't know if you've been in a meeting and the speaker is, is going on and talking and you realize that you and your buddies in the meeting, like you, nobody understands what this person leading the meeting is actually talking about. But no one wants to kind of raise their hand and say, I don't know, I'm, I'm lost here. And Thomas is just willing to do that for the group in this moment. In verse 5, he says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's like, thank you, Thomas. Thank you for saying what all the disciples and even us as readers at this moment are, are thinking. Jesus, you, you say we know the way, but we don't, we don't know the way. And Jesus' response to Thomas is one of the most well-known sayings of Jesus of all time. And it's also the second reason why we can be confident that everything is going to be okay. Uh, everything's going to be okay because Jesus knows where we're going. And the second here, we, you know that everything's going to be okay because Jesus is everything you need. Jesus is everything you need. John 14, 6, Jesus responds to Thomas's question with these words. He says, how can I know the way, Thomas says. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, Thomas and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, I'm the way. Everything's going to be okay because Jesus is everything you need. Jesus is the way. He is the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. He is the way home. He is home. He is the rest that we yearn for. He is the way to the satisfaction that eludes us. He is the way to the healing for our broken bodies and our broken hearts. He is the way out of fear. He is the truth. He is the truth that sets free. He is the truth that brings light into darkness. He is humble, patient, confidence in the midst of confusion, misinformation, and idolatry. And you know, it is precisely because, it's precisely because Jesus is the truth that churches throughout history have been committed and passionate about education. It, it's why we partner with King Elementary and, and Caring for Kids, the organization that helps to organize those partnerships. And actually, um, in her book, Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society, Amy Sherman notes that literacy, at the heart of what literacy is, and all the good things that it brings and benefits for jobs, all that, but the heart of literacy is connecting with others and our ability to read and write and communicate. And then she makes this observation, illiteracy and ignorance fundamentally hinder human flourishing. Why? Because they inhibit that connection and communication. Without education, we risk profound social isolation. God made human beings with brains and gave us curiosity. Education is a form of cultivating the mind. 
And then as she brings that statement home, later she writes this. She says, supporting quality education of all children, believers and non-believers, is a matter of justice. This is because of the connection between literacy, learning, and human flourishing that we examined earlier. And Amy, actually, in that chapter of the book, that section, she profiles the work of caring for kids in Kansas City as one of a really prime examples of how churches and schools and other organizations can partner together for the flourishing of education in their communities. That's why we've been so delighted to partner with King and Principal Abrams, because Jesus is the truth. He's the way. He's the truth. Jesus is also the life. He is the source of all life. He created you. You live because he lives. Uh, This is the amazing thing about this. Judas, in this moment, betrays Jesus with the life that Jesus gave him. Peter denies Jesus with the tongue that he created. That night, as they ate that Passover lamb, they were eating a creature that Jesus designed. The feet that he washed that night were his idea. The grapes that formed the wine that they drank that night were Jesus's idea. He is the source of all life. He is the life. Everything will be okay because he is everything we need. And as God, he is the only way to God. He's not just the way to something else. He isn't just the path to what we think we want. He is also the destination. He alone is essential. He is the only way to the Father. He alone is who we truly long for. Friends, everything is going to be okay because He is all we need, and He gives us to, gives us to Himself in abundance. He doesn't hold back. So don't let your hearts be troubled. It's going to be okay, Jesus says. He knows where we are going. He is everything we need, both for right now and for forever. But the question then is, how do we actually live those realities? So the moment when you're actually there laying in bed at night, unable to sleep because you're thinking about the sermon or the hot water heater or whatever it is, how do you actually bring this reality of the fact that Jesus is everything we need, that he knows where we're going, the security of those realities, how do we bring those into our hearts in those moments? Well, here's where Jesus kind of gives us this next step. He says, everything's going to be okay, so keep trusting and praying. Keep trusting and praying. So how do we not let our hearts be troubled? We have to trust Jesus. We have to trust him, actually believe what he says is not just kind of true as in a fact out there, but personally trust his word to us. And all throughout the Gospel of John, like 90 times, this language of belief is used. Believe in me. Believe. God, I'm writing these words so you will believe. And in the original language that's being written in, in ancient Greek, kind of the ideas of faith, belief, trust, it's all the same word, word group. It's the, all the same thing. So to believe is to trust, is to have faith. It's all the same. But in English, sometimes we can separate those out, right? So you can ask someone, do you believe in Bigfoot? Right? And someone might say yes or no, but asking someone, do you believe in Bigfoot? Whatever their answer might be is a very different question than asking them, do you trust in Bigfoot? And someone could even perhaps reasonably say, I believe in Bigfoot, but I don't trust Bigfoot. He's not trustworthy. But in the Bible, to believe in Jesus is to trust him. 
And, and I think sometimes we run into this, and, I, and I'm, I'm there with you, where it's like, I kind of like, yeah, I believe that Jesus exists. I, I believe in his promises, but I'm not actually functionally trusting them. Sort of like in an abstract way, I, like I believe this fact, but am I personally trusting Jesus in this moment? That he really is everything I need. That he is going to provide everything I need when I need it. Maybe not everything I want, but he's going to provide. We have to come to that place where we not only acknowledge that Jesus is real, but that we trust in him. And that trust works itself out in prayer. That the more you come to trust Jesus, the more you'll find yourself praying. Even just simple prayers, getting up out of bed and saying, Jesus, what, do, what are we going to do together today? How, how, what do you have in store? How can we partner together? And even in bigger prayers as well. But Jesus says this in verses 12 through 14. When you really trust him, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. And then to verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, he, I will do it. Now, this is one of those places where Jesus, and he, he says things like this at a number of places throughout the four Gospels, where he makes these really bold promises, these really bold statements about asking my name and I'm going to do this work. Say to this mountain, go be thrown into the sea and it will do it. If you have the faith of a mustard, there's all these places where Jesus says some really bold things about prayer in his name. And I, and I think the statements of Jesus like this can really stretch and challenge our faith because uh, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, I'm sure you've prayed for things in Jesus' name that he hasn't seemed to do, at least not how you are asking or any way that you can see. And then sometimes, you know, we add this caveat, well, praying in his name means praying in line with his will, and, and that's right. But then sometimes we say, but still there have been moments where I have prayed for things that it seems like are pretty clearly in God's will. Like, I want this family member, this friend to come to faith. Isn't, isn't that in Jesus' will? And yet they haven't. Or I have this dear friend or child and they're sick and I've asked for them to be healed and I mean that's again that I, I don't know but it feels like that's Jesus in line with his will and I'm praying in his name and, and there is mystery here uh, that is deeper than we can ponder in the time we have this morning there's lots of great stuff as Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history have, have wrestled with how to take Jesus at his word in these moments and what does that mean but let me just say two things here as a way of, of help in this moment, at least that have been helpful to me. One is this. Uh, I've always been helped by a statement from Tim Keller, and he wrote a book on prayer. It's a, it's a good one if you want to read a book on prayer. But he says this. He says, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want them to be answered if you knew everything he knew. God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want them to be answered if you knew everything he knew. Which, of course, requires, it comes back to this trust. It requires a lot of trust to say, Jesus, I'm praying in your name, and I'm trusting that you know more than me, that the time horizons you're working on, that all of the 
myriad of connections and people and interactions through history and across culture and all these things, kind of butterfly effect kind of stuff, that you've got all of that in view and you are answering my prayers in exactly the way I would pray if I knew all that you knew and I knew your timing and I knew how you were at work and I knew how all these things would affect all the other things. That just brings us back to this place of trust. Saying, okay, I trust that you know more and you are working for my good, even when I don't see it, and even when it seems like it's not. And here's the second thing. If we trust Jesus is everything we need, that if he is truly the way, the truth, and the life, then he is the answer to our every prayer and longing, ultimately. He himself is the answer that we're looking for. If you're longing to be married or or longing for a better marriage, Jesus says, here I am. Here I am. If you're longing for children or you're longing for the protection and safety of your children, Jesus says, here I am. Here I am. If you're longing for a better job, a a different career, advancement in your work, Jesus says, "I'm, I'm here. If you're longing for relief from stress or pain or sadness, he says, here I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And you, the longer that I've followed him, the more I realize and even experience that that is what I want. More than anything else, is to know that he is with me. To know that he's not going to leave me. To know that he has prepared a place for me. That he is the way and the truth and the life. But again, it requires trust. And that journey of trust can feel risky, and it's not always uh, a trust that is just relaxed and, and um, you know, just cozy. It can sometimes be kind of a white-knuckled trust as we're on a journey that feels really scary. And back in 2020, uh, we went on a trip to Rocky Mountain National Park together as a family, and we had been there before, but one of the things I wanted to do on this trip that time that we had gone is I wanted to drive the old Fall River Road. So if you've been to Rocky Mountain National Park, there's this really nice modern road called the Trail Ridge Drive that takes you to the park. It's beautiful. It's two lanes. It's paved. It's, it's great. The old Fall River Road is the original road that went up to the Alpine Visitor Center. It's one way. It's narrow. It's steep. It's kind of treacherous, but it's, when it's open, it's really beautiful and it takes you through these woods. And I really wanted to do this, go all the way up to the Alpine Visitor Center at 11,000 feet. But our daughter, our oldest daughter, Lucy, she did not want to do this drive. She was afraid of the road, afraid of the drive. And we all were a little bit, right? But I just, I had to ask, Lucy, you got to trust me. Trust me that I wouldn't do something at least seriously unsafe. Um, and my, my whole thing with this too is like, I really trust the park rangers, you know? So I'm like, man, if cars were falling off this road every day, like they wouldn't leave it open. So if they're letting people drive on it, it's got to be, it can't be that dangerous, right? So I've put my confidence in those rangers. Um, and I just had to say, Lucy, you got to trust me that when we get up there, that it's going to be a beautiful drive up there. And when we get there, it's going to be a beautiful view. And more than anything, just trust me that we're going to be, mom and dad are going to be there with you in the car the whole time. We're going to be with you. And it wasn't easy. There was a few of the turns where she's like, dad, I don't like this. And that's moments in our lives are going to feel like that on this journey sometimes. But we made it to the top. And, and the joy was worth it. So that's up at top of the mountains there. And uh, I, I think that she was mostly happy. And this next picture too, even that one, she's like, I'm still thinking she's kind of shaking off a little bit, the, uh, the drive. <laughs> but 
the destination and the joy is worth it. Jesus is asking us to trust him, to go to him in prayer, to trust that he is everything we need, and that with him all will be well. Now, 700 years ago, in the 1300s, a woman named Julian of Norwich wrote these words, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Now, maybe you've heard that quote before. I've heard that quote a number of times, like that quote, but I never knew the story of that quote until just recently. I actually looked it up this week because I was like, oh, this feels like a great quote to use in the sermon, but I wonder what the story, I wonder what, when she wrote that. And the story is fascinating. So she's writing this in the mid-1300s, and her village of Norwich, the city of Norwich in England, has been just absolutely decimated by the black death, by the plague. And Julian herself is incredibly sick. She's expected to die, and in the midst of all that, she's kind of despairing of her life and the sickness, and she even comes to this moment of she's just overwhelmed by her own sin and her brokenness, and just is incredibly broken, feels just defeated by her own sin most of all. And she has this vision of Jesus who comes to her and says, Julian, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And she survived that sickness, and she actually wrote down and recorded those visions that she had. She had a number of these visions of Jesus. She wrote all that down. And today, those visions are some of the earliest preserved writings of women that we have in the English language. And they reflect the heart of someone who trusted deeply the one who says to each of us, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And Jesus is so thoroughly convinced that it will be well despite everything. It's almost like in the midst of all this that he's saying, because he says this line about don't be troubled right after. It's the next sentence he says after he says to Peter, you're going to betray me. And we have a chapter break there in our Bibles, but Jesus wasn't like, now pause, chapter 14. It was Jesus' one continuous speech. Peter, you're going to betray me. But don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me also. And, and he can stop himself in that place and say, I know it sounds bad. Trials, tribulations, trouble, abandonment, betrayal. I'm making it sound bad, but it will be well. It will be so good you can't even imagine. imagine. And Jesus knows it will be well. And how does he know it will be well? Because of the cross. On the cross, every pain, every disappointment, every heartache, every sin, every doubt, every failure, every betrayal, every trouble in this world, in this life, we can experience and more will be put on Jesus on the cross. And when it has been fully poured out, every excruciating drop to the extent that you and I can never fully understand and can't understand, he says to every troubled heart in that moment as he takes his last breath, it is finished. And three days later, in another upper room, with disciples still gripped and feared and doubt, still troubled, he appears to them and he says, put your fingers in the scars on my hands, the scars on the side. Do you see now, do you understand that all will be well? All will be well. That if Jesus can transform the cross, an instrument of torture and death, into the means of life, we can have confidence that all will be well.
And so with the remaining time here, I want us to just actually take a moment to kind of pray together, to practice receiving the, po- the, 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 the peace, the joy, the rest that's offered to us. And so just ask you, just put down pen, notebook, phone, whatever, for just a moment here. And I'm actually going to put three different questions up on the screen and just use those as prompts to kind of examine yourself and then offer those things to Jesus in prayer. So the first one is this. Where are you striving? Where are you striving? Where are you trying to go with all of your might, desperate for every step, for every breath? Where are you striving? Take a moment, look for those places and offer them to Jesus. Where are you striving? Jesus says to you in the midst of those places of striving, where I am going, you may also be. Second question, what do you want? What do you want? What answer, what solution, what relief convinces you that it's all you need, right? I can just get this bill paid off. I can just get this thing solved. I can just hire this person. If we can just, whatever it might be, I can just help this child. What's that thing that you're tempted to put all of your trust and hope in that? Offer it to him. all those other things that vie for your trust and say, if, if you can just get this, if you can just solve that, then everything will be okay. Jesus says to you in those places, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, what troubles your heart? What grief, what losses, what fear, what uncertainty grips you? What are those things that keep you awake at night? What troubles your heart? Friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus says to you in those places, let not your heart be troubled. All will be well. All will be well and all manner of things shall be well. Jesus, help us believe in you like this. We love you and we pray this boldly as you taught us in your name, trusting that you will do for us exactly what we long for and would long for if we know and knew everything that you know. Amen.